Well, this morning, we're continuing our study in the book of Judges. I'm always conflicted when something like Palm Sunday comes along because you're wondering, should we depart from the course of study that we're doing to focus on Palm Sunday? And my feeling is we should focus on the Lord Jesus Christ year-round. Now, next Sunday, we will do an Easter sermon. That is a promise. But for this Sunday, because we had introduced... Samson's life last Sunday, I want to continue in that flow, in, in, in that course of study this morning, because I think it's so important we learn from the mistakes of those in the past, and certainly there's a lot we can learn from Samson, because what we're going to see this morning is flawed people, but a faithful God. Sometimes we look at the figures in the Bible, and we wonder how in the world could God use such flawed people to do such wonderful things. We see kings, we see judges, we see common folk who do some amazing things because God is so faithful, but yet when we look at the biblical account of their lives, what do we find? They're tremendously flawed people. Now, in the best of all worlds, you would have somebody who is a faithful servant like Daniel the prophet or like Joseph, and they remain faithful and they're godly and they're good throughout and they do great things for God. But you know, as we look through Scripture, that seems to be the exception rather than the rule. Often what we find is, I wouldn't have chosen the people that God chose to do the things that He did. But guess what? We're not God. And when we look at how God can take flawed people and do great things, it's not so much a focus on the flawed people as it is on a great God. A God who can work in spite of us, if not through us. And that's what I want us to see today as we look at the life of Samson. I want us to see, yes, a man with all of the blemishes, all of the flaws, but someone who was used by God. And here's the hope. If God can take someone like Samson and use him, maybe he can use me too. Now, one disclaimer. Do not, and I repeat, not look at this morning's sermon and say, oh, Well, if God uses flawed people, then let's have at it. I'll be as flawed as I can. Not the purpose of the message, okay? This is a message that gives us hope because it is a message that focuses on the grace of God and the power of God, even with fallen and flawed human beings. And by the way, we all qualify as flawed and fallen human beings. So let's look at the life of Samson. When we come to the 14th chapter, we find that something is brought out about the character and the nature of Samson that is less than ideal when it comes to being a servant of God. Now, at the close of the 13th chapter, we saw that God blessed Samson, and we saw that God was working in Samson, and the Spirit of God was coming upon him, and we had great hope as we closed the 13th chapter. 
But now as we come to the 14th chapter, we find someone different. Not this son of promise who was brought into this world miraculously by God, but someone with a wandering eye, someone who was arrogant, unteachable, someone who was dead set on having his own way. And what we find in this truth is this, even an arrogant, self-absorbed person can accomplish God's plan. Look with me at the 14th chapter. Remember, Bert read this passage just moments ago, and here's what happens. Samson lives in an area just on the outskirts of the Philistines, and he's a young man at this point, and he's walking around, and he says, whoa, now there, I'm trying not to look in any direction, but I'll look at my wife, how's that? (laughs) Now there is a beautiful woman. (laughs) As a young man, that caught his attention. And normally, young men, when they see beautiful women, gravitate toward them, right? And that's what Samson does, but there was one problem. This beautiful woman was a Philistine. Now, when we hear Philistines, we think, well, Philistine, Jewish, you know, the, the, the racial barriers or, or the ethnic barriers, why, why do they matter? Here's the issue. The woman that Samson fixed his eyes on, it wasn't a racial issue, it wasn't an ethnic issue. The issue at hand was a spiritual one. You see, the Philistines worshipped idols. And so, as Samson is looking at this beautiful woman and being drawn to her, The problem of his being drawn to her was this, he would abandon his focus on God, his love for God, and he would replace it with one that didn't share any of God's views. As a matter of fact, her views would be antithetical to everything that Samson was taught as a Jewish young man. When his parents heard about it, he said, why are you focusing on this uncircumcised Philistine? Now, what he meant by uncircumcised wasn't the medical aspect of circumcision, but more the idea this person is outside a covenant relationship with God. And you are choosing to pursue a deep relationship with somebody who does not hold to the truth of God or the teachings of His Word. Now, I think there's application for us today too, don't you? In the most intimate of human relationships, marriage, we should choose someone that shares our faith. We should choose someone who shares our view toward God, His Word, and His truth. And what happens when we connect with somebody who has polar opposite views to what we hold when it comes to God's Word and God's truth. Rather than changing them 99% of the time, it does happen occasionally, but generally what I've seen in 36 years of ministry is this, the person who compromises and enters into this relationship loses their conviction. And they start to build relationships 
and to form bonds that draw them away from God rather than pull them toward God. This is what happens with Samson. When his parents said, isn't there a woman among all of Israel that you can go to? Samson gives this response. Look at the third verse right at the end of it. Get her for me, or she is right in my eyes. Now, here's the issue. She is right in my eyes. Never mind what God said. Never mind what my parents said. I know what I want. I want it, and I'm going to pursue it. Listen, whenever we do what is right in our own eyes, we're a candidate for disaster. As we're going to watch the story of Samson unfold, we're going to see that his commitment to doing what was right in his own eyes led to disastrous results for him, for the Philistine woman that he was fixed on, for all of them. As the story unfolds, the path that he followed because of his arrogance, because of his decision to do things his way rather than God's way, is disastrous. In fact, look as we continue in this text and we come to the fourth verse. Now, I don't know about you, but reading this fourth verse, even as it was read in the Scripture reading, it brought... Tremendous question to my mind. Here is Samson being disobedient, and yet look at this commentary that the writer of Judges makes here in the fourth verse. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Now that is a palm to the forehead because you stop and you look and you say, wait a minute, Samson was being disobedient, but the disobedience was from the Lord? How does that work? Well, let's work through this together. God never inspires a person to do wrong, to be disobedient to sin, okay? James assures us of that, that God doesn't sin, neither does He tempt anyone with sin. However, God, in His plan, does include the sin of human beings, And it accomplishes His purpose and His will. In other words, the will of God cannot be stalled by flawed human beings and their disobedience. And I have a couple of examples that I would like for us to think about. First example, Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph? Joseph is in a coat of many colors and he's walking out and he's saying, I'm dad's favorite. Now this is a brief summary of what happened, or that's the way his brothers took it, and what happened? The brothers sold him into slavery, threw him in a pit, passing caravan, take him, he's gone. Well, God worked through Joseph, remember? As he's in Egypt, he raises through the ranks, he comes to a place of leadership in Israel, that, or in Egypt, that nobody would have imagined, and When Joseph meets his brothers who had come down to Egypt because of a famine that was taking place, this is what he said. Joseph said to them, do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, 
But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. From the brother's perspective, let's bump Joseph off. Let's get him out of here. But from God's perspective, looking down the path, he said, I will provide for an upcoming famine by moving Joseph into this place of leadership in Egypt. Were the brothers fully committed to harming their brother? Absolutely. Was that something that was being obedient to God? No. And yet it was from God because God used their disobedience to accomplish His purpose. Here's another example. And this is certainly one that we'll be thinking about this week. As Peter is preaching to the people of Israel, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, wait a minute. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God? Yes. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was a part of the plan of God. It was perpetrated by evil men with evil intentions, but it accomplished the purpose of God. So when we look in the Scripture and we see flawed human beings doing what flawed human beings do, we can still understand that there is a God who will take that messed up, sinful action that a person does and still work it around to accomplish His purpose and His plan. The purpose of God cannot be shut down. Well, back to Samson. As we look at Samson in this story, we come to the fifth verse, and this moving toward this woman at Timnah leads to another situation. And here in the fifth verse, this is what happens. Samson, his mother, and his father are going to Timnah, and they're going to make arrangements. Remember, in those days, a person didn't just ask somebody out and then videotape their proposal to share on social media, right? Parents arranged the weddings. So here is this wedding that is being set up, and the parents are going down, and as they're moving toward Timnah, in the field is a roaring lion. Now, when we hear roaring lion, we think, oh, how cute. In that day, when you hear a roaring lion, it's, uh-oh. <laughs> I am a lot slower than a lion. I'm done for. But what happens? The Holy Spirit comes upon Samson, according to this text, and he pulls the lion limb from limb just like somebody would a baby goat. It's an amazing feat of strength. And it's something that God empowered Samson to do. A demonstration of the power of God, a demonstration of the provision of God, a demonstration of the protection of God for Samson and his family. And here's the amazing thing. Even though Samson is being disobedient, disregarding what God had called him to do, nonetheless, here is God protecting him. 
But what stands out in this story isn't that he beat up a lion. And by the way, when he beat up the lion, it wasn't because Samson worked out. It was that the Spirit of God came upon him and empowered him to do so. But what stands out is this. A little bit later, the carcass of the dead lion is in the desert. And now this gets a little gross. But a bunch of bees take up residence on the inside of the dead lion. And when there are bees, there's also honey. And so Samson's walking along, and he wants to look at his handiwork, and he says, there's that lion I killed. And he sees bees swarming around him, and he goes, hmm, if there's bees, I wonder if there's honey. So he sticks his hand inside the carcass, and he brings out honey, and he eats it. Now, we look at that and say, well, God's provision. But remember the vow that Samson had taken. He was a Nazarite. And a part of the Nazarite vow is they do not touch dead things, and they certainly don't eat stuff out of dead things like that. This was a breach, and what stands out even more is this. Not only did Samson eat the honey that was on the inside of that lion, but something else, he brought it to his parents and said, here, have some honey and some honeycomb. Gnaw on this a little bit. But he didn't tell them where it was from. See, not only was Samson moving into sin, but he was drawing his family into sin. Samson was a flawed individual. But the story doesn't stop there. It is so interesting the way this story builds on itself. And as we come to the next part of this passage, we find another truth about Samson. Samson was a flawed individual, but he's a very angry and vengeful person as well. And when we come to the 10th verse of this 14th chapter, we find that Samson went down to the woman, this woman of Timnah, the Philistine woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. So he's doing what culturally they would have done as far as a celebration of their betrothment. And in verse 11 it says, as soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. So here's Samson partying with the Philistines. I mean, basically this is what is going on. And so with these companions, verse 12, and Samson said to them, let me put a riddle to you if you can tell me what it is within seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. Now, by the way, the clothing in that day, it was intensely valuable. 30 garments, that's huge. It's not like he walks down to Walmart with spare change and goes to the clearance rack and says, hey, let me get 30 pieces of clothing so I can pay off a, a debt. These were things that were painstakingly put together, and they had great value. But he figures, hey, this is a safe bet, because listen to the riddle that he gives them. Verse 14, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. It even rhymes, right? Right? 
So here he is sharing this riddle, and there they are listening to the riddle, and he figures this is completely safe. This is so random. None of them are going to guess that I pulled honey out of the inside of a lion. And so there it is. He, through his pride, seeks to win over these people. But this is where the story gets interesting. Verse 15. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is. Now look at this threat. Lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. So here's Samson. He's being disobedient. He goes into a relationship with this Philistine woman. He sets up the crowd to make himself look important. And now... Fire is about to rain down on this woman and her family because of what Samson has done. Well, we know the story. The Philistine woman starts to, oh, you don't love me. If you really loved me, you'd tell me the answer to the story. And day after day, she is encouraging him. I won't say nagging, I'll say encouraging him (laughs) to give her the answer to the story until finally he relents and he confides in her. Well, we all know the story. Here is Samson, probably grinning from ear to ear on the seventh day, verse 18. And just before the sun goes down, that would be the close of that day, Those companions are smiling bigger than he was. And this is what he says, or they say, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Can't you imagine the feeling that Samson has? I've been had. The woman that I trusted breached my confidence. You know, it would have been interesting if it had ended here. Maybe he would have had a lesson learned. But look at verse 19. In verse 19, it says, The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon. Now, Ashkelon would have been one of the larger Philistine cities. And he struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave their garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. Now, here's another one of those confusing statements that we find in the book of Judges. The Spirit of God came upon Samson, and Samson used the power that the Spirit of God had given him to basically murder 30 people to get their garments. So what gives? Flawed people often take the abilities that God has given them and use them improperly. What do any of us have that God didn't give us? If it's Being attractive, there are plenty of people who will use being attractive as a way to have leverage over people and do very, very sinful things with being attractive. 
If it's athleticism, some people will take the athleticism that God has gifted them with and use it as a means to fuel their pride and their selfishness. Here, the Spirit of God had given Samson great strength. And yes, the purpose was for Samson to defeat enemies. Bear in mind, the Philistines were enemies and God had empowered Gideon to beat the Midianites. And he had empowered others to gain success in battle. But the motivation that Samson has in this text seems to be kind of messed up. Because what he does in going after these people isn't about God, it's about him. And that brings out another point that we find in Scripture that's surprising. Guess what? God can take people with lousy motives and still use them to accomplish his purpose. I think of what Paul says to the Philippians. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. They proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I will rejoice. God can take even a messed up motivation and work His will in spite of us, if not through us. And so what happens? The beginning of the 15th chapter, we, say, we see after some days, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat, and he said, I will go in to my wife in the chamber, but her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please, take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines and the harm that I do to them. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches and turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. So what does he do? He catches foxes. By the way, catching 300 foxes? Uh, That's tough. Catching one fox is tough. But catching 300? And then I have to give Samson points for creativity. To tie torches to the ends of the fox's tails and see them run through fields of grain dry waiting for harvest. He was going to devastate the crops of the Philistines. And he was going to do it quickly as... 300 foxes scatter and light these fields on fire. Why did he do it? Out of anger, out of revenge. But what was God doing in all of this? Here's what we need to recognize. The Philistines ruled over Israel. Rather than the people of Israel, which we saw in the 13th chapter, crying out to God and saying, God, deliver us, they said, well, this is our new normal. Had they continued to be under the rule of the Philistines and accept it, what would have happened? They would have been absorbed into the Philistine culture, and Israel, as a unique people, would have disappeared from the face of the earth. God was working to preserve His covenant people. 
using unusual means to do it, but it was God's faithfulness that accomplished it, not the flawed nature of Samson. And that's what we have to focus on as we look into this text. One last thought as we come to the 15th chapter. We accomplish God's purpose, and often it is in spite of us, if not through us. You see, God is able to overcome our flawed thinking to accomplish His will. Look at the 15th chapter. Some days after the wheat harvest... Samson went to his wife with a young goat, and we saw what happened there. The foxes were turned loose. The orchards were set on fire. But then, as we come to the seventh verse, it says this, And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear, I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. So, what happened? After the 300 foxes run around and set the fields on fire, you know what the Philistines did to the woman that Samson had a relationship with and to her father? They burned them. They burned them with fire because of their connection with Samson. What they were saying is, if you burn something precious to us, we burn something precious to you. So this cascade of horrible events that comes comes because of the disobedience of Samson. But here's the thing about sin. When we engage in sin, we never know where it's going to end up. It seems to mushroom and move along in ways that we could never imagine. And this constant friction between Samson and the Philistines spills over into the lives of other people. And as a result, terrible things happen. And certainly that's the case with the family that Samson had become interested in but got caught up in the fallout that took place. So what happens? We find that Samson goes back and he decides he's going to wreak havoc on these people. He swore that he would not stop in the seventh verse until he finished. And then in the 8th verse, it goes on to say, and he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Etham. So here is Samson. He's slaughtering. By the way, in the 8th verse, when it says he smote them hip and thigh, that's another way of saying he murdered them. It's a euphemism in the original Hebrew. And so here he is. It's, it's escalating. And, and what do we find? In verse 9 it says, And the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us to the Philistines? And they said, We've come up to bind Samson to do to him what he did to us. He burned their fields. They wanted to burn him. And so here are the men of Judah, and they have a decision to make. Do we side with the Philistines, or do we decide, are we going to side with, with Samson? And, and look at the decision in verse 11. The 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etham, this is where Samson was, and said, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? In other words, Samson, what's wrong with you? Why are you poking the bear? Why are you telling the Philistines that you're going to have vengeance on them and then actually carry it out? 
What do you think that's going to do to us? Isn't it interesting that they feared the Philistines more than they feared God? But then we pick it up and it says, what is this you have done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, have I done to them? So here's the exchange. Philistines are saying, we're going to come after him because he started it. Samson is saying, I'm going to come after them because they started it. There's no peace, only retribution, only anger, only the seek, seeking to, to break the other person. So what happens? The people, the Judites, take Samson and they bind him. And they take him and turn him over to the Philistines. They were willing to sacrifice Samson to save their own necks. But yet, what do we find? God was in it. Should the people of Judah have turned Samson over? No. But what it was doing was building this rift between Israel and the Philistines, a rift that needed to be there because they had become like the Philistines rather than like the people of God. And so God was using extreme measures to extricate them from their alliance and their bond with the Philistines. Well, the next part of the passage is the part that's probably most familiar to us. Samson advances the purpose of God in spite of his fallenness. Look at this passage as it continues. And what we find in the text is that when the Philistines came up, Samson was taken bound to them, and they come at him screaming. And then verse 14, look at what it says. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Now, once again, what do we see? The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and the ropes that were on his arm became like flax that was caught in fire. In other words, if you've ever burned rope and it's just ash, he broke them that easily. And it says, and his bonds melted off of his hands, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, once again, touching a dead thing as a Nazarite, breaking the vow. But he took it, and he struck 1,000 men. Now, bear in mind, the Philistines did not come defenseless. They didn't send their weakest, wimpiest soldiers to come get him, right? Right? They had superior weapons in that the Philistines had iron weapons. So here are these thousand people, and they're going to march their trophy probably back to one of the major cities and slaughter him in front of everyone to show their dominance. And what happens? The Spirit of God comes upon him, and 1,000 Philistines lose their life. Just like that. God took this flawed human being and used him to deliver Israel. Now, here's the question as we look at this story. Why does God use flawed people? I mean, my goodness, if I were to look at Samson and I see the record of him there in the book of Judges, and I were to guess whether or not he's really in a relationship with God and in fellowship with God, guess what? I probably would have said, you know, I don't think he's saved. And yet, 
What do we find in Hebrews chapter 11? Something amazing. And what more shall we say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, and stopped the mouths of lions. When we look at it, we say, why? How, how come God uses such flawed people? And here's the answer. We're all flawed. We're all fallen. If God only chose perfect people, there would be no well to draw from because none of us are perfect. Secondarily, if God only uses and dispenses grace and blessing and favor and goodness to those who are worthy of it because they have earned that, God would not be a God of grace. Grace means God reaches us right where we are with the offenses, with the failures, with the fallenness that we have. And He uses us in spite of ourselves. Now again, this isn't an encouragement to go out and live in license. This is more about God, His power, His ability to work through such flawed vessels. So I encourage you this morning, if you have looked and you have seen where you have been disobedient, confess that to God, seek to forsake that, but don't allow that to be something that says, I am of no more use to God. God takes flawed individuals and uses them for His greater purpose. Pray for one another. Seek to live in obedience. But where you step out of line in obedience, confess, repent, and say, God, use me. I don't know about you, but when I appear before the judgment seat of Christ, I don't want God to say, you messed up royally, but I worked through you anyway. I would much rather hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, there will be those that God will say, you know, you couldn't have made worse choices, but I worked anyway. Don't be one of those. Be one of them committed to God, seeking to live for God. Avoid the pitfalls that Samson fell into and live as a true follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the challenge that it is to us to live obediently. Dear God, may we lead obedient lives. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.